Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, just not everywhere all the time, but I am approachable generally. Jen, Chad Pergram's going to be with us. He's always approachable and he's also full of information as we have this new massive border bill just dropped uh, in last night. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg will be with us this hour. He's going to give us an idea of what's happening with the 100 strikes back over the weekend to Yemen, to Iraq, to Syria. But first, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. If the goal is to deter Iran, you're failing miserably. This idea of hitting hundreds of targets, it doesn't matter. The only Iranian we killed in Syria, Iraq, is some dumbass that doesn't know to get out of the way. <laughs> so funny. Uh, Middle East mayhem. American military spent the weekend hitting 90-plus targets from Yemen to Iraq to Syria, but avoiding Iran and telegraphing every blow. This is not the strategy that will work, and the president does not even give the American people the courtesy of a direct explanation, a press conference, let alone an interview. Number two. Well, I think you're going to see that the Trump campaign is going to start shifting their focus on just general chaos in regard to Biden's administration, whether it be in the Middle East, whether it be crime, whether it be the border, uh, turning the whole chaos word on its head against Joe Biden. Yep, uh, that is Ryan's Priebus, of course. New polls out, and Trump is leading Biden beyond the margin of error as Biden continues to avoid interviews, press conferences, even a friendly Super Bowl sit-down, foregoing an opportunity to sell himself to 50 million people in an election year, which makes me think you can't win without trying or hiding in the basement. Number one. The key thing here is changes the asylum laws, builds more wall, adds more detention beds, adds more deportation flights, uh, changes this 10-year backlog that we're currently in now to weeks before people are actually deported. That's what the bill really does. Well, I'll tell you what. That was Senator Langford, and he spoke to me specifically uh, at Fox and Friends um, for the first time about the bill that he's been working on for at least six months. It's the new burden bill. It is released. We will give you the facts, the fears, and the chances of it passing, along with the idiotic pilot plan to give New York illegal immigrants prepaid credit cards at $1,000 a clip of a cost, uh, cost of $53 million. I mean, I thought this was a joke. I thought this was rumored. I didn't know they were putting the pilot program in place. You know why? Because the free food we give them, they're throwing out. So he said, let's just give them money. Let them shop on their own. 
I hope the fabric softener is good for the when we do their laundry. I hope it's getting the proper bounce and smell they, they like. Is this crazy? How many people out there working hard two jobs trying to pay for daycare wouldn't benefit from a free $1,000 a month card, let alone coming from another country that we have not given you any background on? So uh, let's talk about this border bill. So first off, I uh, Senator Murphy, Senator uh, uh, Langford, and Senator Cinema, they worked hard. Well, please stop putting people down and doing personal attacks because people are compromising. There's nothing wrong with these three, two men and one woman working together. And by the way, I think they all agree the White House was a pain in the neck. They sent different emissaries down there, people you would not know, and they didn't want to do absolutely anything. Well, they know the border is so broken because of them that they had to come to the table, which made someone like Mitch McConnell say, never before did I think we could get this much with a Republican president, let alone with a Democratic president. However, I understand people's skepticism. So one thing that we could agree on, and I was going back and forth with Bill Malusian on this, the asylum claims are really a benefit because now if you come to the border and say, I have fear for my life and my safety, and you just walk up, you're not getting in. If you have... Um, unimpeachable proof that you can't go to another portion of your country or the other country that you got through once you left yours, then you will have a chance at a hearing and you might get an ankle bracelet and you're going to be back not in five years, but in six months. That's an improvement. Is it everything you want? No. The shutdown on the mandatory uh, activation. So this is the whole thing. We're getting over 5,000 a day. If that happens, that means people, these are just encounters, not just people that are rejected, not people just sneaking in, encounters. Some people are going to be accepted. Some people, when it gets over 5,000, that's untenable. They shut the whole border down. And it doesn't open up until you get the numbers down until it's ready. Senator Langford wanted to explain this provision because he thinks uh, that everyone is a digestion and says after 5,000, they shut the border down. It doesn't mean 5,000 getting in. They could all be rejected. But if they hit the 5,000 number, cut three. And then the final element on this is the Border Emergency Authority. This is the most misunderstood portion of the entire bill. Uh, there's a perception that uh, this allows 5,000 people in a day to be able to come in. That is absolutely not what it is. When the border is being overrun, everyone is deported. Uh, you can still have an orderly request for asylum at a port of entry, but everyone else that crosses does not get to apply for asylum and has a very rapid turnaround to be able to make sure that we regain orderly control of the border. The border stays closed where everyone is turned around uh, until the numbers drop 25% on asylum and the other one's called withholding a removal. All three of those are combined into one screening to expedite the decision process as well. So this also goes on to end catch and release. However, unaccompanied minors, they still get in and families still get in. They get ankle bracelets. They're going to have their case heard within six months, but they're not going to be by judges. It's going to be from USIS people. And as uh, Chairman McCall told me, they tend to be the more liberal out of the Homeland Security. So that's problematic. I should have asked that in a follow-up, but I had seven minutes to go over uh, 280 pages of a border bill. And that's only the 280 pages are just the border section. That doesn't include the Ukraine aid, the Israeli aid, and the aid to Taiwan and other areas too, by the way. Uh, So that's done. The other thing you will have is 
provide $650 million to build and reinforce miles of the new border wall. This is money left over from the Trump years that they were trying to get a hold of and spend elsewhere. Now they're going to do it to building the wall. They're also going to increase Border Patrol recruitment, give them overtime. Believe it or not, they do not have overtime right now. So now all of a sudden we have people that are rejecting it without seeing it. Well, fundamentally, that's never been a, a good idea just to say something is a non-starter without reading it. But that is Chuck Schumer also having not read it, we assume, loves it. He says, in the coming days, the Senate must actively decisive, act decisively on this emergency national security supplemental funding on Monday if we take to the first procedural step to getting it passed in the Senate with the first vote scheduled for Wednesday. I think it's way too soon. If you actually want to give an honest approach to this, you can't ask people to read all these pages where every word matters and understand it and have an opinion on it in two days. Speaker Johnson said, I've seen enough. This bill is even worse than we expected and won't come close to ending the border catastrophe the president has created. All right. Uh, So he's out on that. We'll see if it gets there. We know that Lankford will vote for it. That's one. We know that Senator Lindsey Graham will vote for it. That's two. I imagine Mitt Romney's going to vote for it. That's three. But the question is, do you get to 10 and put all the pressure on the Republican House, which is hanging on by a thread? That is because something I'm going to talk to Chad Pergram about. We're going to get into details on this. But just know, if this was in place right now, the border would be shut down because it's over 5,000 a day. Here's what uh, Congressman Jim Heim said about what he heard other people talking about this bill as they released a cut nine. I'm not looking necessarily to protect Mike Johnson, but Mike Johnson is a very precariously situated Speaker of the House. And so the question is, how do we get instincts like Mike Turner's uh, to prevail in the Republican Party? And how do we get enough Democratic votes uh, on, on, on the left to make sure that we take advantage of this truly generational opportunity. Again, don't listen to me about this. Mitch McConnell in the cabinet room said, if we had Donald Trump as president, a Republican Senate and a Republican House, we would not get this deal. So he's a, he's a congressman from Connecticut, and he's referring to Mike Turner. Mike Turner said, I want to read it. Uh, I'm not against it. Uh, I'm not for it. I just need to get through details of it, but I'm open to it because we have to fix it. And he'll just make a stand. Also on foreign policy, they vehemently disagreed. Uh, because we saw those strikes over the weekend. We saw now we're up to about 100 strikes in in between Iraq, Yemen, and uh, Syria. And we're hitting the targets, but we telegraphed everything so far away. So we blow up their infrastructure. I don't necessarily need to see death and destruction, but if you're trying to kill us, I'd rather kill you first. And they went out and took out Tower 22, and the first thing they said is, we're not looking to bomb Iran. And Iran came out and bragged and said there was a time in which the U.S. never would have taken that off the table. Now it shows how much more respect we have. That's the last thing you want to do in that region is say the the bully of the Middle East, say we're not going to hit you. It makes them seem stronger and makes them even look better in front of a very skeptical population. So we have a lot to discuss, a lot to go over. I have legitimate questions. I'm not going to make uh, pretend that I've read all 280 pages. But I have gone over uh, a lot, and I've been reading a lot about it, um, and I'm going to do the best I can to present it out there. Uh, and I also know there's political risk in anything because the president broke the border. He's been almost almost as in, in a way that's impeachable, and now he wants to take credit for fixing it. And that kind of bothers me, right? Well, you're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show, one 866 But I'll be taking your calls in a half hour, so get ready. Next is going to be Chad Pergram. Then after that, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg. Don't move. 
politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. So we actually have this bill came out uh, yesterday, Sunday. Uh, First procedural vote is Wednesday, and that procedural vote is literally just open it up to be able to go through it and to be able to say, are we going to debate it this week? That's what Senator Lee is actually talking about. It's interesting that he said he's already opposed to it. He needs three weeks to be able to read it, but he's already opposed to it. Uh, So, uh, again, people have got to be able to read it, go through it themselves. Don't just go off a Facebook post somewhere what the bill says. This dramatically changes asylum. It dramatically changes deportations. We no longer have a 10-year backlog. It builds more wall. Those are the key things that it actually does. But read it for yourselves. Don't just believe what's online. Uh, that's what Senator Langford is just asking. You want to be critical. I mean, can you read it first? Chad Program knows all about uh, difficult legislation and the chances of it passing. Uh, Forty years ago is the last time he did something significant at the border. He is uh, Fox News' congressional correspondent, and nobody's better. Chad, uh, they seem to be in a big rush to get this border thing passed. How significant, first off, is this legislation? Can you put it in perspective? Yeah, it's pretty monumental in the sense that, as you say, it's been a long time since they've actually passed significant border legislation. There was a big border immigration bill that was passed in 2013 in the Senate with more than two-thirds of all senators, and then that never got a vote at all in the House of Representatives. And the way this is going right now, this kind of reminds me maybe of what happened in 2013. Uh, They might be able to get something out of the Senate, but ever bringing it up in the House of Representatives, uh, that might be uh, too far a bridge here. I mean, Steve Scalise, uh, the majority leader, said he will not put this on the floor. Uh, You've had a number of Republicans speak out against that. And it's just not the right, Brian. You've had liberal Democrats who are very opposed to this bill. I mean, I interviewed uh, Nanette Berrigan. Democratic representative from Los Angeles, who's the chair of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus uh, last Thursday, and she was upset that the uh, CHC was left out of the negotiations, didn't like the asylum provisions, didn't like some of the things she was hearing, and was opposed. And in the Senate, you're going to have this mixture of Democrats and Republicans who are opposed, uh, sometimes for different reasons, like Alex Padilla, the Democratic senator from California. Uh, He appears to be opposed to this right now. Uh, By the same token, you have Bernie Sanders, the independent senator from Vermont, who hasn't said he's opposed to the bill, but forget what else is in this bill here. There's this big international aid package. And Sanders, before they released the bill text uh, yesterday, signaled that he did not like how the U.S. was dealing with Israel and kind of suggested that maybe uh, these provisions to fund Israel might not be something that he could vote for in the uh, in the Senate. So, again, mm-hmm. we don't know. We will have this test vote on Wednesday, as James Lankford said. This is a motion to proceed, to actually get onto the bill, to actually launch debate, and you need 60 votes. You're going to have to have a cocktail of Democrats and Republicans to get there. I know. It looks like Lindsey Graham's 40 went to bat for it on Fox mm-hmm. News Sunday with Shannon. Then, of course, he had Lankford, who was just on with me about an hour ago. Uh, he wrote it. I'm sure he's going to be for it. And I'm not sure who else. I know Mike Turner seemed more open to it than the speaker. He was on another one of the Sunday shows. But I want you to hear what Senator Murphy, another one of the authors of this bill, said about what the GOP did not get. Cut five. This bill is a compromise. It does not include things that Democrats still believe are moral imperatives. 
like providing a pathway to citizenship for undocumented Americans. But it also does not include many Republican priorities. There is no expansion of expedited removal in this bill. There is no increased detention authority. There's no transit ban. There's no return of Title 42. This bill's a compromise, but it is a breakthrough, a breakthrough that many political pundits didn't think could happen. Your thoughts? Well, that's what's amazing about it. I mean, you know, you look at uh, some of the opposition to the bill, and as Langford and uh, in particular Murphy had pointed out for a long time, he said there's stuff in this bill that they never thought the Democrats would go for. And and Democrats gave a lot, frankly, I mean, I mean, to get certain provisions here. That's a problem for them. And and the fact that you have, you know, Republicans who are out to kill it, the fact that, you know, Democrats are going to be willing to agree to some of these caps, uh, we're going to be uh, willing to agree to some of these asylum changes and detention and shutdown issues. I mean, that's a problem. This is, let's face it, this is political right now. It is an election year. It is hard to get big things, some, some, uh, such as something as, as radioactive as immigration, border security done in an election year. And even though it might be a pretty strong bill, even though you have people at the polls, the political polls here, liberal Democrats, conservative Republicans who are against it, uh, they might not be willing to go for it. We'll know more on Wednesday in that test vote. Yeah, I guess we'll see. So the question is, you know how it works, uh, Chad, in an election year especially. So the president, former president, came out and said, I'm not for it. The speaker goes, it's dead. I've seen enough. Okay. So if, that, if, the, if the Republicans in the Senate, who have a good shot of getting the majority in, a few mo- in nine months, if the Republicans in the Senate know the House is a no, just know it's a no, would they vote for it and put all the pressure on the House? Is that unlikely that even if 10 were likely to go for this, make some changes and maybe get something a little bit more, do you think they'd put that kind of pressure on the House? You see, I find it hard to believe that uh, that if you don't have a majority of Senate Republicans who are for this, that this goes anywhere. Now, if again, if you get a, a coalition of Democrats and some Republicans together, you can certainly get to 60 votes. But if say let's say say you lose five Democrats, and you get 15 Republicans, so you're really at 61 votes. But that's not even close to half of the Senate Republican conference. You need 25 out of 49. And that's not enough. I mean, you need a good, you know, maybe only losing two or three Democrats and and a good, you know, even if you're not quite at uh, at 25, good, maybe 22, 23 Republicans, you know, to get well over 60, then you might be able to put some pressure on the House of Representatives. But that's uh, that's hard to see. And again, you have these weird coalitions. And again, the problem here is that what hangs in the balance is aid for Israel and Ukraine. And this is something that Mitch McConnell has argued. He said, we have an opportunity to make law on three different fronts here, dealing with Ukraine, dealing with Israel, dealing with the border. He said, let's try to go for it. And McConnell gave a full-throated endorsement for the bill yesterday. He is a big advocate for Ukraine. And what happens to that Ukraine money if this blows up? Uh, Mike Johnson has a plan for funding Israel in the House. That's going to come up this week. It is an Israel-only bill, but he's even gotten blowback from the Freedom Caucus, who said, we don't like the fact that it's not paid for. And so you know, he's kind of getting it in stereo, too. So that bill you know, might be in trouble now. Uh, so maybe none of this gets done, frankly, Brian. Unbelievable. Uh, Chad, you, your job is never easy, but always exciting. Chad Pergram, thanks so much. Thank you. You got it. All right, when we come back, I'm going to find out what's happening in the Middle East. Somebody really knows it, and it's going to probably work for... President Trump again if he gets a job back. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, you listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move.
the fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. On the telegraphed point, President Biden has been saying for months that he would respond to attacks. We have responded to previous attacks. Mm -hmm. And when three service members were killed, of course, Iran knew that the United States would respond. So the idea that somehow this was telegraphed, uh, I think, is a bit more of a political talking point than uh, than a reality. Really? That was Jake Sullivan doing all the shows yesterday, or most of them. Uh, and he was uh, telling the, the hits over the weekend, which number between 80 and 100 uh, on Yemen, Syria, as well as Iraq, were not telegraphed. Well, joining us now is Mike McCall, his chairman of foreign relations in the House of Texas. Congressman, Congressman, great to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Your reaction to Jake Sullivan saying it wasn't telegraphed. Well, they did. They, they said a week before the strikes that we are going to hit uh, – uh, you know, these targets, but it gave them a week to prepare. So the IRGC in Iraq and Syria and Yemen were able to pull out their assets, uh, return to Iran and avoid these airstrikes. So it had, uh, I think it had minimal impact, which is why you saw the Houthi rebels respond after the strikes on Houthi. There's no deterrence here. When you talk about uh, stopping these militias, uh, they were were they going after our we have two thousand five hundred they say in Iraq. There wasn't much violence before October seventh, is that correct? Or correct. were they were they so this happened since October seventh. Yeah. Why do you think that the president was so reluctant to show power? Hundred and sixty strikes on our forces in Iraq, Syria, um, with little response, weak response. This is the first decisive uh move they've made, and if it's not decisive enough Ryan, without deterrence, they're going to continue to do this. And, and that's why I also think back-channeling, I would back-channel to Iran, to the Ayatollah, if you keep killing American servicemen and women, we will hit you inside of Iran. So here's what uh, your colleague, Congressman Adam Smith, Democrat from Washington, said over the weekend, cut 32. I do think the options about hitting with inside Iran, as I've said before, those need to be on the table. But there's a couple of things that were missed, I think, in the previous comments. Number one is what's going on in Gaza. I mean, that, that drives a lot of this and what's going on in Israel. What Iran could do is they could flip the switch and attack Israel uh, from Lebanon. Uh, Hezbollah could be a lot more aggressive about this. So that's a response that they could give that would blow up the region and really jeopardize U.S. interests as well as Israeli interests. What do you agree with about what he said? Well, I, I think uh, to some extent he, he's correct. I would not take that option off the table that is hitting Iran. I think they need to know that we're prepared to do that so they stop hitting our men and women. Uh, Hezbollah fires rockets every day into Israel. Hezbollah combined with Hamas could overload the Iron Dome, which is why we need the Israel aid package. Uh, but they could overload the Iron Dome, and it would put Israel in a really bad spot. That's why Congress has to pass the Israeli package. $15 billion? Well, the price tag's going up. I, I, I think, you know, uh, big supporter of Israel. Because that's, that's what the speaker's doing. He's going right. to put a, a provision of $15 billion. Right. Uh, primarily, they need, uh, you know, the interceptors for Iron Dome. They need the 155 caliber ammunition. <clears throat> and I think we need to give them everything they need right now to succeed. So I just want to give you an idea of some of the politics and tell me how they play. Privately, it came out yesterday that Joe Biden has privately ripped Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu as a bad effing guy. 
as the war rages on, and he's just furious with him the way he's prosecuting this war. Then we have this other uh, gentleman who's to the right of Netanyahu, gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal, and said he's opposed any deal with Hamas that would end the war or free Palestinian prisoners, and said Donald Trump would be a better uh, better for Israel than Joe Biden. So politics a play very much connected here in uh, in Israel and the U.S. Your reaction to their these controversial positions? Well, I think I think that's that's correct. I, I think uh, while you see optically the our president and Netanyahu supposedly getting along, there's a lot of tension behind the scenes uh, in terms of Biden trying to micromanage uh, the way Netanyahu carries out this operation uh, in Gaza. I think Trump would have been a different scenario. I think he would have. Uh, he always, uh, I thought, provided deterrence out of fear more than anything and projected strength. Biden just doesn't project strength. And so you're seeing the same thing play out with our best ally, Israel, you know, in, in the Middle East um, and micromanaging these efforts. I think Netanyahu is torn between his far right and, and the president of the United States. Uh, but we need to let him eradicate Hamas in Gaza. They've only gotten 20 percent of Hamas out. No one really disputes that. And now the places they leave, Hamas is reconstituting. What does that tell you about the operation? Well, uh, we need to let them go all in or, or get out. That's my premise, Colin Powell doctrine. Allow Israel to do its work. When I was in a, a, a meeting with Netanyahu in Israel two weeks after the invasion, very clear. I, I'm going to go in. I'm going to eradicate Hamas. They are not going to govern Gaza ever again. But neither is Israel, he, he said. And, uh, you know, he's correct. Let's let him do his job. Let him eradicate Hamas. Uh, and then we got a real opportunity. I mean, I'm going to Saudi in a, in a month to talk about the security agreement between Saudi and Israel. This could transform the Middle East. And we have to look at the post-Gaza conflict, how we can uh, find a way to allow the Palestinian people to coexist with Israel but that's not going to happen with Hamas. Jeremy McCall, here's the problem, and I'm not telling you something you don't know. The Palestinians don't want a two-state solution, and the Israelis don't want a two-state solution. It's easy for us to sit here and say, let's do it, and other Arab nations say, let's do it. They don't want it. They both want the same land. And that's a problem. In the United States, <laughs> and it has uh, been a problem since the 40s. Well, since uh, the state of Israel is created. Uh, you know, uh, the, the United States has always been the force behind Israel that does not allow them to collapse at the hands of the Palestinians and Hamas. So um, I think you're going to see a keen appetite in the Arab world to try to resolve this after the conflict. But again, it will not work until Hamas is eradicated. So the thing is, our our administration decides they're not going to communicate. They do it through uh, Anthony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, always look scared to death when they're on television. Uh, and now the president can't speak. He's even turned down the Super Bowl interview. So it's left to guys like you, Lindsey Graham and General Keene, to explain the necessary of this operation. And like Michael Waltz, he wants to throw up his hands. Goes, Why am I defending something? I don't I don't agree with the uh, the type of tension created between both these governments, Netanyahu government and this one. I don't agree with the slow walking of weapons systems and weapons specifically uh, in Ukraine. Why am I defending an operation? But it's in the U.S. interest that Ukraine be successful. How do you do that uh, in your position right now as chairman of foreign relations? You do believe that you it's in our interest for Ukraine to get supplied, right? Right. It, it, no, they're, they're so afraid of their own shadow. Like, we don't want to be too provocative. So therefore, let's have a slow dribble of weapons into Ukraine 
Don't give them what they need to win, just enough to survive, have a stalemate, which is what Putin wants, and then erode down the will of the American people. And, you know, to some extent, Putin's been successful. And the same strategy in the Middle East. You know, let's not be too provocative because we don't want to escalate this with Iran, but they forget that strength and peace through strength is a doctrine that works, provides deterrence, and they are not doing it in either place, either right. the Middle East or in Ukraine. If we abandon our allies uh, in Ukraine like we did Afghanistan and turn it over to Putin, and that would be Moldova, Georgia, and then it threatens the Baltic states. Um, the reason I support Ukraine fighting this effort because I don't want to see our men and women in uniform over there. And if they hit a NATO nation, we will be. We will be We committed. are treaty obligated. Treaty and then, obligated. You know, you know, I could just hear the argument. What do we care about Lithuania? Do we really have to fight for Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia? Come on. We don't care about those countries. That'll be the pushback. And I go, wait a second. What good is it to be an ally of America anymore? We won the Cold War for a reason. Whether successful or not, we would we would match up with the Soviet Union wherever it was. You try to take it over Africa, we're going to meet you. You try to take over Southeast Asia, we're going to meet you. You're going to try to move into the Western Western Europe, we're going to block you. And then we wore them out because their doctrine's terrible. There, nobody wants to be communist. So people saw the freedom, and actually, the good guys won. We have a formula. Why are we stopping with that formula? Ukraine has killed three hundred thousand Russians. Yeah, if you told me the Pentagon said, hey, less than 5% of our budget, we will you know, annihilate 50% of the Russian military without one American soldier, I'd right. tell you that's a pretty darn good deal. And then I asked the question, what would Reagan do? You know, I, I, he was the first president I got to vote for. Reagan took down the Soviet Union. So many quotes of him talking against isolation, isolationism. Being the leader of the free world was so important right. uh, to him. And if we... If we back down and surrender, we are uh, basically taking that mantle off the United States and we're shrieking from our responsibility. I want to get you take from what you know of the border bill. You were digesting it as I am. You watched the Senator Langford interview back waiting to do your interview on television with me. From what you know right now, can you support it or what do you need to know? Well, I think it's uh, – I admire him for taking on the issue. It's not easy. I have a lot of battle scars when I was chair of Homeland. Uh, but it, it, it's – I don't think it's going to be adequate enough. Uh, for the House, but I don't know if he'll pass out of the Senate. Uh, I think the real weakness is there are not no significant uh, you know, political asylum changes uh, like remain in Mexico where the claims are adjudicated outside the United States, then they're not released. And the system they have, it takes a prosecutor and judge out of the USCIS process where they're given sole authority to then release them with either ankle bracelet or a work permit. So you're going to see all these political asylum cases being released into the United States with a work permit. Right. Um, I do think that they said that the only way to get in there is to prove you're under threat or else you're going to be turned right around. But the unaccompanied minors, there's no answer. That's what the Democrats did not want to budge on that. So there are some asylum changes. We'll see what's uh, if it's going to be adequate, it doesn't seem like any Republican is going for it outside uh, Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell, but it doesn't even mean he's going to vote for it. Um, and we just heard, too, speculation from Chad that some Democrats don't want it. So if Senator Padilla doesn't want it, then you need more Republicans to pass it. And if you don't get half the Republicans, why would you damage the House 
by putting something in there. So it's going to be fascinating to see. Chairman, great to see you. Thanks so much for the quality time. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Not much happening in Texas, right? (laughs) Not at all. A lot going on. (laughs) Hey, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk to – we have a special guest. We have Lieutenant Colonel – General Kellogg. Don't move. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If the goal is to deter Iran, you're failing miserably. If the goal is to protect American troops, uh, you're not achieving your goal. If you're convinced, Iran, we don't want a wider war, they believe you. Oh, I don't want a war with you. They got the message. What they're not uh, afraid of us. They were afraid of Trump. They're not afraid of us. This idea of hitting hundreds of targets, it doesn't matter. The only Iranian we killed in Syria, Iraq, or or is some dumbass that doesn't know to get out of the way. We gave them a week's notice. <laughs> and and Lindsey Graham is passionate about it. He goes across party lines. If Trump if Biden does the right thing or Trump does the wrong thing, he would say it much to the consternation of people on his right. He's a very frustrated guy. Is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg feeling the same way? As you know, former National Security Advisor to VP uh, Pence, and I know he's uh, uh, Donald Trump really values his opinion too. Uh, General, were you happy with the hundred strikes? Did we change anything? Uh, thanks, Brian, for having me. No, uh, there's a level of frustration that I've got with it because it, we're not really dealing with the big issue, which is deterrence. I mean, these are punitive strikes. In other words, they killed three Americans, they're shooting rockets, so we're going to have punitive strikes. There's a huge difference as to scale and scope between det- between punitive strikes and deterrence strikes. And what I mean by that is a deterrence strike is something that you you put at risk something that your opponent holds dear. And until you do that, then you really don't have deterrence. That's where we're we're trying to go to. Otherwise, we're just muddling along. You're going to see strikes tomorrow, the next day, the day after, a week from Tuesday, another month. And we're not bringing this to a a conclusion. And the, the thing you run into, Brian, when you do that is now every day that goes by, it is harder and harder to put some type of deterrence back in the box because sort of like what Senator Graham said, they're just saying these guys aren't serious about it. They're not. They're, they don't really care. We're going to keep shooting and doing things. So what you're going to end up with down the line, you're going to end up with potentially a nuclear breakout by Iran, who has a lot of missiles, the totally destabilized Middle East, and then you're going to get back to what Winston Churchill said in World War II when he called it quote an unnecessary war, because it was a war that started because nobody pushed back against Hitler. And, and that, that, Brian, that's where we're at. Would you before? I know the Saudis were asking to meet with this administration about setting up a mutual defense contra- uh, compact, and that might be part of the recognition of Israel. I'm not sure they do it right now anyway, but would you sign up for that? You know, here's what i do. I'd sign up all your allies that you've got, and the Saudis are pretty good. See, see I think you've got a different type of leadership now in Saudi Arabia uh, with King Salman, you know, being as sick as he is, and you got MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, his, the crown prince, who's very, very liberal, all things considered, for the Middle East. Not liberal as you and I would understand, but pretty liberal. And he wants to align himself with the United States, but he's not aligned with, with Biden. You know, remember, when President Trump went there, they had a sword dance, you know, big uh, Yeah, I remember. It was when, one of his first visits. There, 
Yeah, and they're exactly right. And then when Biden goes there, he gets a fist bump. And so they, so what do they do? They sign a, a peace deal with Iran. The Saudis do, and who brokers it? The Chinese. So until something changes, the Saudis don't trust us as well because they're saying, I don't believe these guys are going to be there when things get really, really bad. And they're the ones that are really concerned about a nuclear breakout by Iran because if they break out, then I think they're going to be forced into doing something They said it. Similar, probably they told Brett Barry, he goes, if they get a weapon, we will get a weapon. Yep. And then you talk about destabilization there, yeah, because what happens, Brian, you treat a nuclear adversary significantly different than you treat a non-nuclear adversary simply because he holds you at risk with different weapon systems. So, you know, it's different facing Russia than it is facing Monaco. Uh, you, you have to think differently. You have to act differently. You react differently. And and that we'll have to do the same thing in the Middle East. And we're letting them get out of that box. And every day that it goes by, it is so much harder to put everything back in line. And I don't think they're there. I think I think it's in their DNA. Honest to God, Brian, I don't think they've got the intestinal fortitude or in their DNA or in their thought process to push back hard. I get the risk. I mean, people say, well, a risk of a wider, wider war. Of course there's risk. There's risk in everything you're doing, but there's also risk in not doing anything. And that's where my right. concern about the risk is. They're on the ladder, not the former. I want you to get I just want you to weigh in on Ukraine. I know you go there a lot. Zelensky's doing some major shakeups there. It looks like the Russians have 17 regiments, 16 battalions, um, and they between 16 and 62,000 troops in there, reserve units in there. So I'm wondering, is this the moment that they think they can win real quick, 30 seconds, and yeah, can Ukraine hold out? I think I think you're in a giant stalemate right now. I think because of you, the Russians have been beat up so bad. This is the time if you really want to end this, and somebody needs to figure out how do you get to a peace treaty? How do you do it? Look, the, the Ukrainians tried their best in their offensive. They got stopped by what's called the Surovikin line when they tried to push through and, and reinforce the defenses the Russians have. The, the Russians have been beat up. The Ukrainians have been beat up. And sooner or later, somebody has to say to both sides, okay, enough of this. It allows us to pivot to China. But right now, I don't think the Russians can, can prevail, and I don't think the Ukrainians can prevail. It's a harsh assessment. Now, if you had asked me this a year ago, different story, because if we had had the ability and the sense to really supply the Ukrainians with what they needed, the they Russians at that time a year ago were on their heel. Yeah, they were slow walking everything. General, thanks so much. He gets on the ground. He gets the answers. Appreciate it, General Kellogg. Brian Kilmeade Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone from Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world. Brian Kilmeade Show, back in action today. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. Michael Goodwin is getting set from the New York Post. Got a great column over the weekend. Uh, how Joe Biden is bringing, basically bringing us into another world war. And Tom Caracco, senior fellow with the International Security Program and director of the Missile Defense Project. Uh, also, we're in the middle of an election, 2024. You'll be fascinated to see some of these new polls. I'm stunned that, that NBC cannot be too pleased with what their poll reveals. And that's their guy, who's basically in a, uh, in a walking coma, uh, ain't winning. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. If the goal is to deter Iran, you're failing miserably. This idea of hitting hundreds of targets, it doesn't matter. The only Iranian we killed in Syria 
Iraq is some dumbass that doesn't know to get out of the way. Middle East, uh, Middle East mayhem. American military spent the weekend hitting 90-plus targets. This is not a strategy that will work, and the president does not even give the American people a heads up. And an explanation about the strategy is... Number two. Well, I think you're going to see that the Trump campaign is going to start shifting their focus on just general chaos in regard to Biden's administration, whether it be in the Middle East, whether it be crime, whether it be the border, uh, turning the whole chaos word on its head against Joe Biden. Right. Priebus knows the thing, uh, too, about strategy. He used to run the RNC. New polls out, and Trump is leading Biden beyond the margin of error as Biden continues to avoid interviews, press conferences, even a friendly Super Bowl sit-down foregoing an opportunity to sell himself to 50 million people in an election year. Why? Number one. The key thing here is changes the asylum laws, builds more wall, adds more detention beds, adds more deportation flights, uh, changes this 10-year backlog that we're currently in now to weeks before people are actually deported. That's what the bill really does. New border deal release. We'll give you the facts, the fears, and the chance of it passing along with the idiotic pilot plan to give New York illegal immigrants prepaid credit cards because they didn't like the food. Uh, by the way, if you ever want to catch up to the show, uh, you can use the Fox News app. When you do it, look on the bottom on Watch. And you can also see the show because we stream it. And just go home to you see Fox News Radio. you recognize the show. You can also see it on Fox Nation and get the podcast. Michael Goodwin with us now. Michael, welcome back. Good morning, Brian. Thank you. Michael, so let's think about this. $7.2 million. Uh, it's going to cost over a million dollars a month to give illegal immigrants cash, credit cards, uh, to go shopping. Uh, because the food, they don't like the food that we're giving them for free, so we're going to let them go buy their own. How do you feel about that? Uh, I think it's just another step toward complete insanity. Uh, you know, somebody mentioned, I think, on Twitter that why not, if you're going to give them this kind of aid, why not give them food stamps uh, so that the money can only be spent? Uh, I mean, that's what we do for citizens who are needy. Yeah. Why would we give cash to illegal immigrants. Uh, Look, it's just another example of how dumb Mayor Adams has been about all this. I'm sorry to use such a harsh word, but he has just... He he objects to so many coming here, and yet the next day he will do something like this. And this has been the pattern throughout. Uh, Come here. We're a sanctuary city. Oh, too many are coming. Well, what did you expect? Well, come here. We'll give you a room. We have to give you a place to stay and food to eat. But don't come. I mean, oh, don't come, but we're going to try to get you work permits. So he has consistently offered this kind of generosity. I mean, the welcome wagon is apparently stuffed with goodies. Uh, and then he says, don't come. Well, why wouldn't they come? Wouldn't you come? Of course. If, if, you know, I mean, and a place to stay and now a debit card. I mean, it, it's, it, he, they're living better than the people on the streets or many of the people in the city shelters, of which there are more than 60,000 so, uh, people. Is, so it, it just defies description as to why he keeps uh, you know, offering more right. and expecting that this will solve the problem. So you know that Greg Abbott is the big evil guy. They, they put people on buses and send them to New York and call their bluff, even though even David Axelrod said it's been a genius political move to get let every state feel the pain that border states feel. Here's what Governor Greg Abbott said when he heard about this new program, Cut 15. 
it sounds like insanity is behind it because it, it really is, is offensive. It's, it may be the most reprehensible thing that I've seen take place over the past 48 hours when you, when you see police officers in New York City being beaten by illegal immigrants uh, in this country who should not be in the country in the first place. Uh, and then after they engage in this crime against a law enforcement, uh, law enforcement officer, they are let loose back out onto the streets. What's going on in New York is outrageous, and Americans across the entire country are angry, not just about what's going on in New York, but the underlying cause for it, which is Joe Biden's open border policy. And he's trying to get them all work permits so they can get jobs. Uh, so that's what the governor is doing, Hochul, while pretending to be upset that, uh, that, a, uh, that one of our policemen get beat up. When she does nothing to protect us, we can't recruit enough right now, by the way, too. So that brings up another story. But your column over the weekend, I think, is really important. You believe the president's actions are leading us to World War III. In what respect? Well, Brian, I think that uh, Joe Biden is obviously panicked about the polls. You mentioned the latest one with Trump and Lee. But there have been so many that show that Biden is just not a popular president, even among members of his own party. We've talked before about the the Muslim American voters, particularly in the upper Midwest, and you've got the young voters uh, who are pulling away from him. And a lot of it, or at least some of it, is over Israel. It's over his support for Israel. And I have been writing since very early on in this war, after October 7th, that Biden was doing a, a kind of giving with one hand and taking with the other in terms of his support for Israel. And that has now reached a new level with his push for a two-state solution, which means a Palestinian state created immediately in the aftermath of the war uh, that would have its own government, presumably, uh, that would be admitted to the United Nations. He's pushing for that. And that as part of the deal to basically sweeten this for Israel, which opposes this state now because it would become a terror state. Uh, Biden wants the Saudis to normalize relations with Israel. By the way, Lindsey Graham, whose quote you just had on about, uh, about other things, Lindsey Graham is a big proponent of this deal and, is trying, and says he will bring the Republicans along to support it, uh, meaning a Palestinian state and normalizations with the Saudis. Now, what the Saudis would get out of it is American civilian nuclear technology, so a nuclear Saudi, uh, and a guarantees of protection. And in exchange, they would probably also be leaned on to keep, uh, keep pumping uh, oil through the, through the election so gas prices don't rise and hurt Joe Biden. Now, this to me is a devil's deal. It, first of all, foisting a Palestinian state in, into the region and onto Israel is, a, is going to be a disaster. There, there can be no Palestinian state until there is a Palestinian constituency for Israel's existence. Hamas, Hezbollah, and of course Iran is behind all of this. They want to eliminate Israel. Iran calls it the little Satan. We are the great Satan. Iran wants us all to go bye-bye. And, and Joe Biden, all these attacks on the Houthis and all of that 
as Graham was making the point, do nothing about Iran. And it's always about sending messages. It's not about a military victory. It's not about defeating the enemy. It's sending a message. It's, it's trying to get the, the enemy to see it our way or to see us as some superpower that can destroy them. They don't see it that way as long as we're just bombing warehouses and things like that. And so after, after this effort, after this war in Gaza, presumably, which Biden is trying to end prematurely, you will still have Hamas in control there. And so the creation of a, of a Palestinian state will be de facto a terror state aimed at eliminating Israel. And Joe Biden is trying to make this happen to win back those voters in the upper Midwest and in the college campuses who have soured on his presidency. I mean, meanwhile, he still sends Israel all kinds of munitions. That's why I say he's giving with one hand and taking with the other. Here is uh, what Mike Turner said. And, you know, he's uh, ranking. He's uh, the, the chairman of Intelligence Committee. Cut 35. I think that they have confusion among their goals and objectives. They keep shifting as to what they're trying to achieve with the attacks and really what their policy is with respect to response. You know, that Secretary Austin, Secretary of Defense said that when Americans are attacked, we will respond. However, that's not true. They've tolerated over 160 of these attacks. They've been carrying out strikes these attacks, them. The, well, in, in minor areas, nothing to actually counter what is occurring here. And that's the issue. So, I mean, it, we don't even know. We, we see very little video. The video I saw is some neighborhood in Iraq. Uh, it looks like we blew up some uh, Honda Civic. I'm not sure. Uh, so I don't know what they're hitting. Maybe they, they got everything. I don't know. But I know well, this. And, Did you and, see this story and, 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 that Joe Biden has privately ripped Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as a bad effing guy as uh, the Gaza war rages and he's paying a price with his young voters? Also, this other, uh, this right-leaning member of, uh, I guess, uh, this uh, Ben Gavar gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal. He says he opposes any deal with Hamas that would end the war for free Palestinian prisoners and said Donald Trump would be a better option for Israel than Joe Biden. So they're they're having problems over there and they can't figure out Joe Biden, but they don't want to they can't be critical just like the Ukrainians can't because he's slow walking everything. You know, I, I think Biden uh, has totally misread the situation within Israel. Yes, Israelis of all political <laughs> persuasions are grateful for America's help. We are their, their greatest ally and remain so. But I don't think he understands this, the significance of what happened on October 7th to Israelis. They can never go back to that again. They can never have uh, a terror group on the other side of a fence. They can, and, and that applies to Hezbollah in Lebanon as well. So this idea, we'll just call a ceasefire, you'll get back the surviving hostages, and we'll go on from there. That may suit his political calendar, but in no way is there any support for that in Israel. Israel is already paying a very heavy price in terms of its lost soldiers, but October 7th, was a demarcation day. It can never go back to that. They can never trust 
a terror group on the other side of the fence. No, no Israeli will ever win the, uh, the elections as long as they are for a Palestinian state that is governed and controlled by terrorists. It simply will never fly among the Israeli populace. So what Biden is trying to achieve is forcing this right. onto Israel. And the European Union is doing the same thing. Let's force this on Israel. It's a disaster in the making, and it could lead, as I write in the column, Brian, this really could lead to a world war. Right, and lastly, the NBC poll came out. It is stunning for Trump. Overall, Trump beats Biden head-to-head 47-42. Obama had 50% approval rating at this point. Trump had 46, Bush had 53. This president has 37% approval rating. The economy? Trump over Biden, 55 to 33. Mental capacity, are you competent and effective? 48% to tell say Trump is. Only 23% say Biden is. Foreign policy, 34% approval rating. Independence, 48-29 for Trump. White voters, Trump by 17. Hispanic voters, Biden by one. So, my goodness, this is, and NBC couldn't believe the poll they had to, they had to digest. Yeah, look, and, and we should never forget, too, Brian, what, what's on the other end of this thing. If Joe Biden were to be reelected, does anybody really believe he can serve four more years no. uh, for a second term? So a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for Kamala Harris as president. And I think when the Republicans begin to make that argument more strongly, uh, that, that I think will give more people a reason to say, well, what's the alternative? And if Trump, as it seems almost certain, is going to be the nominee and therefore the only real alternative, uh, I think the polls are going to swing even more in his favor. Now, it's also possible, you know, if and when he gets convicted of a crime, there are people who say that would turn them off from him. Uh, so there's a lot of things right. that are not yet settled as to how this election is going to play out. So fascinating because the documents case is really going slow and they, they all got to get clearance. They all got to look through it. And then the January 6th case is on delay, pulled off the calendar in, in March. Yes. Do you know the first case might be the Bragg case? Good <laughs> luck with that. Now they call yeah. it an election interference case. And he's never, Bragg has never revealed how what what is a business bookkeeping uh, misdemeanor uh, when, how it becomes a felony, uh, which is what he charged Trump with a number of felonies. So it, it, it's bizarre. You have a Manhattan district attorney who the same one who turned loose the migrants who beat up the cops. This is the Manhattan district attorney who's going to prosecute the former president over hush money uh, and using Michael Cohen as his chief witness. Right. And he wants to prosecute people who use fake vaccine cards. By the way, it's just so funny. I'm looking at CNN, looking at the NBC poll. It says Trump narrowly tops Biden in new NBC poll. Five points. It's beyond the (laughs) point of error. He's never had a five point lead. Are you kidding well, and also the states, right? I mean, the individual states oh, where he's yeah. winning all the swing states. I yeah, mean, I didn't see NBC broke that important. out, too. They broke it out the regions. But the individual states, too, was another major poll. He was trailing in the Quinnipiac poll, but that seems to be an anomaly. Michael, great column as usual. Thanks so much for bringing it to light here. My pleasure. Thank you, Brian. You got it. Okay, your turn. one 866 You can write me, briankillme.com, and just click on comments. Don't move. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade.
He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. President Biden made a drastic change in his immigration policy, saying he would be willing to shut down the border if given the power by Congress. It's the kind of unexpected shift in direction Biden usually only makes in the middle of a sentence. (laughs) The Biden campaign is trying to appeal to black voters as polls show their support for Biden has declined. It's getting so bad, he now only has support from Obama's white half. It's pretty funny. Right. I mean, that's, I thought it was very funny. I watched that last night. Uh, I just thought the opening was bet was not great for Nikki Haley. Did you see the cold open? I saw clips of it. I totally agree with you. Like, I don't disagree with the cameo there, but at least make sure it's a funny skit. Right. It's terrible. And it just was, you know, it's like if she wants to come on and hit Trump, I'm for that. So she comes on, but there was no humor. No, humor. like you should have if you built in. I, I feel ridiculous telling Santa Live this, but just building a hit on Joe Biden. Yeah. Just building, just say, well, one guy's in a coma and the other guy is getting, one guy has already lost his mind and one guy is losing it. And then, you know, something. But instead, like, okay, with everything that Joe Biden's doing, the crazy eating his words, the crazy statements, the refusal to give any interviews, the one word answers in front of a helicopter, with everything going on, I got an opportunity to bring Nikki Haley on and hit Donald Trump, so I'm just going to go do it. But, I mean, if I was her, it's hard to turn down. But I probably would have looked at it and go, yeah, not, this is not something I can do. Be a little more critical. Or, you know, just go a little rogue and throw in your own line if it was good. <laughs> and it was live. Yeah. Which, I mean, maybe she might not get booked again. I mean, oh, there, there goes her career. I know. All right. Uh, we're going to go inside what's going on overseas and the, and the, and the strikes with uh, Tom Caraco next. And then we're going to squeeze in your calls in about 10 minutes. I see your names up there. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. And what we want to do is induce in their minds and their cognitive space a concern about continuing on this path and what it might mean to them. Look, Iranian foreign policy is built on three things. It's built on preservation of the theocratic regime, number one, above all others. Number two, the destruction of the state of Israel. Number three, the ejection of the United States from the region. Mm -hmm. Number one is a point of strength for them, but also a point of weakness. And I believe we are consciously neglecting it in this campaign. Unbelievable. That is uh, General Frank McKenzie knows the frustration of this administration, who really uh, ruined his legacy uh, by uh, he was in charge at CENTCOM when everything fell apart in Afghanistan. And now he comes out and, you know, he also was the one who helped execute the execution of Soleimani and other things during the Trump years. And then all of a sudden, Joe Biden's he allowed Joe Biden to ruin his legacy. But his points, I found, are right on the money. And they're not warmongers. When people come out and say, oh, these generals want war, they actually just want the opposite. And what happens is in that area is abundantly clear that the only way to avoid war is to show you're willing to fight it and show that we have the firepower to win it. You probably don't want to go here, but we keep taking a hit on Iran off the table. Tom Caraco joins us now, senior fellow with the International Security Program and director of the Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Tom, how do you feel about these first hundred uh, strikes after the killing of our guys in Tower 22 in Jordan? Yes. Uh, good morning. Uh, well, look, uh, it's 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 good that we have gotten around to doing this. Uh, uh, of course, uh, the, the administration, as far back as Tuesday, began to telegraph 
uh, that these were coming, and then it was widely leaked, I would say, in the 24 to 36 hours uh, before the uh, attacks uh, began, the responsible attacks began on Friday, and then again on Saturday. Uh, it's good. I would say it's a good start. Uh, the concern, one concern would be that, again, by telegraphing these things, that the leadership, especially the IRGC leadership and the Iranian leadership, uh, was able to kind of get the cover, go back to, you, uh, to Iran, uh, and therefore are not feeling the pain. And so it's good to be degrading the technical means. Uh, it's perhaps necessary to be degrading the militants and the folks on the ground, both in Iraq and in, uh, and in Yemen, uh, but it may not be sufficient. And at the end of the day, this is going to be mowing the grass type operation uh, as opposed to getting the leadership to change their decision calculus. And so that's, the, I think, the important criteria for success here. Uh, and I think, it, unfortunately, we probably feel a little short of that. You know, I just keep hearing these, uh, these statements. Uh, well, we have picked up intelligence that Iran was surprised by the attack on, in Jordan. Uh, they were surprised by the January 7th attack, uh, the October 7th attack in, uh, in Israel. And that, to me, almost seems like a cover of, you know, we'd like to be on in Israel, but it looks like they were surprised, too. I, I just don't see that being the case. You know, the, uh, the the man in Casablanca said that he's shocked, shocked that there's gambling going on in the establishment. Uh, I think that the the question of uh, Iranian involvement uh, and direction, I think, seems pretty self-evident. Uh, and, uh, of course, they're going to have uh, press releases denying that. Russia had press releases in the state newspapers the week, uh, two weeks before they invaded Ukraine in 2022. So uh, I, wouldn't put a, uh, I wouldn't put any stock on that. I want you to hear what Brian Hook said uh, last night with Trey Gowdy. He's a former State Department special envoy for Iran, and he was focused on that with the Trump years. Uh, I thought it was very insightful. Uh, cut 39. The only language that Iran understands is pressure and force. And President Trump put in place a campaign of maximum economic pressure. Uh, the president of Iran, while we were in office, said that our sanctions cost the regime over $200 billion. Now, the regime, if they had $200 billion, would have spent it on terrorism. But we denied the regime hundreds of billions of dollars. And that was very effective at constraining their sphere of action in the region. And unfortunately, the Biden administration has taken the exact opposite approach, where they have given the regime $6 billion. And the regime uses that money to then support Hezbollah and other proxies to attack American troops, Israel, and our allies around the region. So we were very successful at deterring Iran. So there's no doubt about it. They were much more successful. But the Obama uh, supporters would say we had them we had them agreeing to a nuclear deal and and f- Trump people blew it. I don't feel that way, but I'm going to throw it out to you. What do you say to people say that? So I, I, I recently did an interview with Politico on this exact question. and I think I agree with Brian Hook's statement all the way through, except to the very last sentence, uh, the you know the maximum economic pressure. He did clarify economic pressure. That is all for the good. That was tremendously beneficial. Uh, you don't want to be and you, you you want to be actively foreclosing every uh, mechanism and financial means to the Iranians to do mischief to sow. Uh, to support the horrific and, and evil uh, actors uh, and their proxies, 
Uh, but we do need to be candid uh, and, and honest and I think objective, and that is that uh, where I disagree is that the Trump administration really deterred Iran. There was a lot of, uh, lot of activity that you know, people tend to forget led up to uh, the um, targeting of Soleimani, most notably the, uh, to kick it off, the shootdown of an American global hawk, uh, which we did not respond to. Uh, and so some of the criticism in terms of let's just call it maximum patience uh, is a bipartisan problem. We didn't, the Trump administration didn't strike Iran back in Iran either. Uh, we just kind of took that. So I think it's important to be objective. Uh, toughness is important. Weakness is provocative. And I think there's there's lessons here from multiple administrations that we should we should apply. Right. I think that's it's going to be interesting, too. And what about the fact that. Israel is not making as much progress in Gaza as they thought. They've killed about 20 percent of Hamas fighters, and they seem to be reconstituting in places that Israel has wiped out and moved forward on. What, does that make you think them they should should they be recalibrating? Well, I, I, I think the Israelis are clearly very committed to uh, a never again. Uh, outcome in terms of the Gaza piece of this, uh, as you say, the the reconstituting in other places, not merely in Gaza, but especially you know whether it be Iraq or whether it be in the north, and the the big danger here, the big risk here is uh, Israel facing you know attacks, larger scale attacks from Hezbollah or from other actors uh, up in the north. They can they can get the Gaza situation uh, you know wrestled to the ground eventually. Uh, but it's going to be the other uh, things that matter. And back to connect that to Iran, uh, we need to change the decision calculus of those who are aiding and abetting these these simple proxies. Uh, what is your uh, view of what we should be doing for Ukraine? Uh, I think uh, we should be uh, doing uh, everything we can to uh, ma- massively degrade uh, the Russian army, uh, the Russian horde. Uh, I, I support that. I support uh, the provisions and the supplemental. Uh, we, it's not a one or the other thing. We should be helping our friends in Israel. We should be uh, absolutely boosting up Taiwan and our other allies in the PACOM. But at the end of the day, it's costing us peanuts, and we're mostly giving them um, items from our junk drawer in order to inflict massive costs and, uh, on the Russians. Uh, and again, the, 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 the evil uh, of, that the Russians uh, are manifesting, but also uh, from a pure realism, pure geopolitical aspect, our effort from now two administrations is, is a return to uh, major competition with Russia and China. Uh, we cannot afford to let Russia win in Ukraine. Uh, do you think the American people understand that? I think the, the administration need, needs to do a much better job of communicating that. There's only been sort of half of one speech uh, by uh, President Biden uh, when he's done that. So I think, uh, unfortunately, no. You wonder if he's capable. He just turned out a Super Bowl interview. He doesn't want to explain the 100 strikes over the weekend, will not sit uh, for a press conference, will not do a sit-down. Uh, I'm wondering what's going on. I do not feel reassured anytime I hear Jake Sullivan speak. Well, look, I, I, again, I think the messaging needs to be massively better, uh, but I feel very strongly uh, it is a, absolutely America's national security interest, both short-term and long-term, to uh, uh, help Ukraine win, and that that will, have, that will redound to our benefit and our allies' benefits, not merely to deterring you know, Russian uh, 
uh, aggressiveness with uh, our friends in Eastern Europe and things, but also, frankly, to the Chinese. The world needs to see that a Western and American-made hardware will defeat the Russian and their Russian knockoffs uh, every single day and twice on Sunday. And uh, that's our strength. That's one of our strengths. And uh, it, it has massive intelligence and deterrence uh, benefits in addition to just uh, helping Ukraine. How hard would it be to get them attack them? And do you think we should get them once and for all to them? Mm. So I, 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 I've supported uh, repeatedly uh, sending attack them to, to Ukraine, but the challenge is that we, no kidding, are limited in our capacity for that in terms of the number that we, we don't have. don't have many. That correct. And that is why the uh, news report from this past uh, week that uh, we sent over uh, a kind of a, a ginned-up munition. Uh, we take a small diameter bomb and put a strapped a rocket motor to it. It's called the ground-launched SDB, GLSDB. Uh, it's not as good as an ATACMS, but it's a heck of a lot better than some of the other uh, long-range rockets that they have right now. And so I think we need to be looking for all kinds of things like that. We want to give them capacity. We want to give the Ukrainians greater reach. And by the way, we need our European friends, the French and the Germans, uh, to be uh, standing up with their uh, their scalp and other uh, Taurus cruise missiles, for instance. All right. Thanks so much. Tom Caracco, always insightful at this uh, very perilous times. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. The other big story that came out is uh, this border bill. And the border bill came out yesterday. You have 280 pages just not even on Ukraine aid, not even on Israel aid. That's separate. But 280 pages on revamping uh, border security, I guess, the overall arching thing. And and what you have is with uh, with Cinema, with uh, Senator Murphy and Senator uh, Senator Langford, you have a situation where they're going to change the asylum rules. It's going to help. There's going to be an automatic trigger shut off at five thousand, which means any encounters, not a letting five thousand people in, but right now they're getting over five thousand a day at the border. Some as hard as eleven thousand. That would automatically shut down the border, you know, including legal uh, uh, legal. Entries, too, uh, through port of entry. Everything just shuts. And it stays that shut until they can get that number down. Then it would reopen again. So uh, 5,000 is a little high, but it doesn't mean they're allowing 5,000 a day. It means it's just a shutoff mechanism. Uh, to me, it's like the stock market. Uh, they're also going to spend $20 billion to improve uh, border security. They're going to get the $156 million to get another 50 miles of, uh, of wall built, which is going to help. The GOP says they want more wall money. They want a more limited parole. Unaccompanied minors, this is what the Democrats got. They can still stay in families. But they're going to have DNA kits at the border. And now they're going to offer asylum claims separate from judges. There'll be Border Patrol at the at the point of entry, wherever it is, who will decide if you have a reason to be here. If not, you're going to be turned around and money's going to be provided for that. Among the Democrats that are not for this, probably every squad member in the House also, Senator Padilla said this bill is of California. He said this bill will misses the mark. It's tra- it's a Trump era immigration bill that will cause more chaos. So more than just Republicans have a problem with it. But I will say this: Mitch McConnell came out and says I would expect a bill like this with a Republican president. I would think we got a lot. I never thought we'd get a bill like this with a Democratic president. But the problem is, you listening to me right now have no faith, nor do I, that President Biden won't find a way around enforcing all this while taking credit for saying I got a bipartisan border bill first since Ronald Reagan. Uh, There's a lot more details to it. I'll give it to you on the other side. Also let you hear what Langford had to tell me earlier today. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. 
Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. So we actually have this bill came out uh, yesterday, Sunday. Uh, it, the first procedural vote is Wednesday, and that procedural vote is literally just open it up to be able to go through it and to be able to say, are we going to debate it this week? That's what Senator okay. Lee is actually talking about. It's interesting that he said he's already opposed to it. He needs three weeks to be able to read it, but he's already opposed to it. Uh, so, uh, again, people have got to be able to read it, go through it themselves. Don't just go off a Facebook post somewhere what the bill says. This dramatically changes asylum. It dramatically changes deportations. We no longer have a 10-year backlog. It builds right. more wall. Those are the key things that it actually does. But read it for yourselves. Don't just believe what's online. So, again, we're back to the crazy details of this of people that are throwing stuff in there just trying to be able to attack a proposal that actually closes the border down. Yes, there's a discretionary piece on this, but it's a mandatory close down. They've got 275 days in the next year that has to be closed down. There is some discretion for the president to be able to reopen it, 45 of those. If we have something like a hurricane come through Central America, something like that, we're trying to be able to manage a natural disaster. But it's not like just a random turnaround on this. And I've had folks that have said, hey, the... The Secretary of Homeland Security would have those authorities. So would every president. So would, you know, a, a Chad Wolf in a future Trump administration would have authority. So the, the key thing here is changes the asylum laws, builds more wall, adds more detention beds, adds more deportation flights, uh, changes this 10-year backlog that we're currently in now to weeks before people are actually deported. That's what the bill really does. So Senator Langford's going to bat for his bill. Today is the first day he's doing it. My goal in the interview on television an hour ago was just to give him an idea to say, tell what is in it. Then I played his critics. Which one is the Speaker Johnson said, I've seen enough, I don't want to support it. And Senator Mike Lee says, I don't want to, I need three weeks to read it, but I don't support it. And he just pointed out, really? I've been working on this for six months. Don't you want to at least read it? But on the flip side, why is Senator Schumer rushing to have, he's got a procedural vote scheduled for today or tomorrow, and at which time they're going to start debating it, and then they might have a vote on it in two days. But there's no way Republicans going to go along with it, I understand, if they just have the 10 votes enough to pass it through. Lindsey Graham looks like he's all in. Bill, uh, Langford obviously is all in. And then you have probably a Mitt Romney would be all in, right, whatever, whatever he does to do the opposite of what Trump wants. It's pretty much what he does. And then Mitch McConnell liked a lot of it, but he won't vote for it if it's not, you know, if it's not going to get the majority of Republicans or at least 20, I would think. I thought it was interesting that Bill Maher just talked about immigration a little. Here's some of what Bill Maher had to say. Cut 13. Joe Biden saying, you know what, if you just give me a new law, a new law, why doesn't the president can fix this? He already has the existing law. And border patrol this, this will is you also right silly. to your face. I need a piece of yeah. paper from Congress to deal with the border. No, you already have that. You, of course he had it. And for Bill Maher to figure it out, hopefully the average person could figure it out. Here's more, though, because he got mad at Republicans, too. Cut 12. Immigration is real, but their their reaction to it is not real. It's all a bunch of acting. They should be getting an award this award season here. Because, no, really, they... The Republicans act like they want to solve this, but the Democrats called their bluff. I mean, there there is a bill right now that a lot of them, Mitch McConnell, like some pretty conservative senators, saying this is as good a deal as you're going to get. They don't want it because they don't want this issue to be solved. See, this is where I differ from. Some just don't want it to be solved, I guess. 
But most just don't trust Joe Biden to enforce anything. And if Joe Biden, this guy who broke the border worse than any uh, president in our history, out of negligence, indifference, intentionality, you, you pick it. None of them good. And then you say, okay, now I got a comprehensive bill, the most comprehensive ever, and I love it. You love it. Did you read it? How You couldn't possibly have read it. Schumer, I love it. Really? You love it? Senator Murphy, okay, wait a second. Now, nobody got everything they wanted. So you're not even playing the game right, saying, I love it. Because for why would you love it when you spent three and a half years saying that Trump ruined the border, broke the border, I'm going to undo everything, including if people here want asylum, they will get it. Why would you give all that up unless there's something there that we don't know? That's how much distrust is between them. I don't necessarily think anybody wants the issue. I think a lot of people would like to. I think if you talk to the Republican governors, a Republican governor in Texas, they don't want the issue. From the Fox News radio studios in midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for being here. Brian Kilmeade Joe. I know you had a, uh, a very intense weekend, even if you watched any of the news. Between the border bill that was just handed down, uh, we're just trying to get a hold of it, 280 pages. Uh, I had a chance to talk to Senator Langford today. It's online on, on foxandfriends.com and foxnews.com. It's going 10 minutes. Uh, also... Uh, we have the situation which is going on in the Middle East. It is flat out on fire. And these stunning polls that have Trump in a up five beyond the margin of error and just growing. Uh, quick announcement, too. If you want to see me live April 27th in Henderson, Nevada, right outside Las Vegas, go to the Grand Valley Ranch uh, at the Grand Valley Ranch uh, Event Center. Uh, go to BrianKillMe.com. Here's my interview with John Walsh over the weekend talking about crime and what's going on in New York as well as illegal immigration. You're going to love this. Listen. Across the country, violent crime is at rates are falling. In some cities, it's going up. But overall, but not everywhere, overall, we are, we, we're, we're, they're, they're, they're falling, these rates. When all the other cities were seeing reductions, uh, Baltimore was seeing increases, right? And this past year, we saw a reduction, but we saw a reduction that was almost twice that of the national average. We want to continue the success, driving down crime in a real, real way and improving public safety. Please, no one buys that. And joining us right now, the host of America's Most Wanted, John Walsh, thanks so much. Do you think that Mayor Adams and President Biden have it right? Crime is under control, going down? Did you see our stumbling president try to get through that in some yes. cities? He's cherry-picking a couple of cities. But those cities, the crime spikes were huge last year, and they might have gone down two murders this year. That doesn't count as crimes going down. Look at this. In the world statistics, name the top ten murder capitals of the world. The first six are Mexico. They had 31,000 okay. murders on the border by the cartels, etc. The next four are St. Louis. Baltimore, New Orleans, and Chicago. We're in the top 10. Four of our cities are in the top 10 most murderous countries in the world. And Chicago, in the last two years, 1,326 murders. One year, they only arrested nine guys for 800-plus murders. What about Portland? Remember the riots sure. in Portland and Seattle, right? Portland was one of the first cities to defund police. Guess how much homicides spiked last year in Portland? 700% because no cop wants to work in Portland. 
Portland, they can't find cops. Why would you work there? Why would you? More it, cops got killed in the line of duty last year than since the beginning of this nation. So think about what's happened since you kind of left the air and went to your horse ranch. Now all of a sudden there's no consequences for crime. Right. Cops have been made to be the enemy, and we're realizing we're trying to make the criminals the good guys. And in turn, there are no cops. This is an excerpt. We have a staffing crisis in New York City. We've lost 3,000 officers last year. Our members are overworked, understaffed, not being able to get days off. We are losing police officers every single day, over 200 a month. We cannot sustain this for the long run. That's the PBA president, Patrick Hendry, and he's saying this in New York, where we've lost thousands of officers but still have 34,000, and they can't handle it. You can't recruit them. Chicago tried to recruit police officers. I think almost half of the... the, the guys there and women resigned and went on to other places so what are they doing in these different cities they're riding one to a car not two not a backup one to a car is dangerous 12 hour days some cities are working 12 days to get one day off they had a recruitment in chicago 80 percent of the guys who showed up were morbidly obese couldn't write read or write and they only hired five cops it's right. impossible to get a cop i always wondered what you were thinking when that defund the police movement went out now it's, democrats it's deny it it's nuts insane. what about keeping our kids safe it means something personal to you we know about your son adam that got you into this business take a look at some of this video of this one kid being abducted caught on camera that was when somebody from their apartment complex tried to kidnap her and she, this guy ended up getting away the girl ended up thankfully getting away is it more dangerous for kids or we just have more ring doorbell cameras way more dangerous for kids pedophiles everywhere all over online and i'm not it's a real reality we have the national center for missing and exploited children started by our in our garage by our wife after adam's murder and we teach kids when somebody comes up to you and tries that old BS, I've lost my puppy or I, I need directions or whatever, the key is go the opposite way of the car. They don't like to leave the safety of the car. So the right thing to do is get toward the sidewalk, get as far as way. So they got to turn around. And they got to turn around and come after you and scream to your top of your lungs because the kids who scream and say, this is not my father, this is not my father, I need help, help, help. They're the ones like that little girl did the right thing. I'm going to add something else, another wrinkle, and that is what's coming across our border. Not only thousands, but tens of thousands of people we don't know, dare I say, eight million. We are finding people turning up on the terror watch list. And these are the people in countries. 700 of them. 700. Yeah. If you take a look at 2017 to 2020, during the Trump years, you had two, 2017, six in 2018. Last year, 172, 336 so far this year. What's going on? So I was the only guy allowed at ground zero. I went on day two, and I'll never forget it, the burning and the smelling and all that type of stuff. It only took 19 of those guys to take down the towers. We now have 700 that we know of terrorists that have come in this country from different terrorist groups, Hamas, Hezbollah, you know, all the different, the Houthis. Um, what are they going to do in here? They're not coming here to work at the Boys and Girls Clubs. They're coming here to kill Jews and kill Christians and take down our society. 700 of them walked across that border. And, and you know, I have a wonderful housekeeper from the Philippines. And I have guys, Latin guys, all many of them over the years work on my ranch. They're furious. They're asking the same question. She said, I waited in line eight years to be a citizen. It cost me seven thousand dollars. I had to learn English, pay my taxes. How and the guys in my barn says ten 
million illegals have come in here. They're going to take our jobs. They're going to work for less. Why, why did we wait in line? Why did we wait in line? And I asked the question, service people will ask me, why did Biden fire 8,000 servicemen, colonels, Green Berets, special forces, because they wouldn't take the COVID shot? Have any of these 10 million people been tested for tuberculosis, for COVID, nothing? They walked across. And I was in California last week, and Gavin Newsom says, if you can sneak into California, we'll pay for your sex operation. And your general health care. And you get a phone. And and people don't know that the government has given these guys that come in here TSA pre-check. That costs 80 bucks so you can get in the line. These people that work for me are so furious about what's going on on the border. Let me just say the most important thing. We had Mayorkas, who I can't stand, the arrogant smile, before a subcommittee in a month and a half ago. And the question was, how many unaccompanied minors from six years old to 17 were pushed across the border in three months? He put his head down. He says, I don't know. But they knew. And they said 85,000. And I prepped him for the questions. All you simply had to do was take a Q-tip DNA swab, put it in a little jar, take a picture. Where are you from? Your six-year-old girl, your seven-year-old girl. You from Acapulco, Nicaragua? Where are you? So you know what he said? We didn't do any of that. 85,000 kids. And where are they going? The cartel charges $3,000 to bring your Mexican or Central American little 14-year-old daughter guaranteeing she's going to work as an illegal maid at the Ritz-Carlton in L.A. Uh Uh-uh. They get across the border at Eagle Eagle Pass. Who's waiting for them on the other side? MS-13, the biggest sex traffickers in the world. Other gangs are waiting. And we don't know where 85,000 kids were pushed across that border. Everything you said is factual. You're not talking politics. You're talking facts. And ladies and gentlemen, there's going to be an election coming up. And if we don't change leadership, we're going to have more of that. It's only going to get worse. Close that border today. I I tell you what, I could have won another half hour, John Walsh. I got to get him in on the show for a whole hour. Coming up next, a special treat. Max Lugavier had tragedy hit his life. He's really a journalist, a nutritional journalist. You will all benefit from this. Coming up next, my interview with Max Lugavier. You'll listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Max Lugavere is a health and science journalist, New York Times bestselling author, the host of the Genius Life podcast. And that's just some of the stuff he's doing. And Max in studio. Max, great to see you. Brian, great to meet. How's it going? I mean, the, the passion that you have and the reason you got in, I think, is important. And then what you've done since, you're helping so many people. But sadly... You got involved in nutrition because you found out about your mom's diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. I began as a generalist journalist, and uh, I became more specialized as a health and science journalist um, by way of necessity, actually. My mother, at a very young age, was diagnosed with a rare form of dementia called Lewy body dementia. People may be familiar with that condition. Uh, It was the condition that Robin Williams was um, diagnosed with just prior to his uh, death by suicide. And it's akin to having both Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease at the same time. And I knew nothing about either condition. But when my mom was diagnosed, it was gut-wrenching to me and my family. It was incredibly traumatic. And I did everything I could to understand, to the best of my ability, why this may have happened to her. And in tandem with that, what could be done to prevent it from happening to myself? What did you find out? Well, I found out that like many chronic conditions of modernity... Dementia often begins in the brain years, if not decades, prior to the onset of symptoms. And to me, that was an incredibly powerful call to action to do what I could to use my skills to advocate for healthier lifestyles, brain-healthy lifestyles. And um, I learned that it's not a genetic that, you know, 
there are many different types of dementia, but when talking specifically about Alzheimer's disease, for example, which is the most common form of dementia, pretty much everybody today has been touched by Alzheimer's disease. That's a condition that is by and large determined by a, an exposure or a set of exposures to our environment. It's not a genetic condition for the vast majority of people who suffer from it. And lo and behold, my mom uh, is the first person in my lineage to have suffered from dementia. And so for me, that posed this incredible question, right? Like, what was it about my mom's environment that yeah. was so toxic that she developed this awful condition? And where would where'd she live? Was she live in the city? Was yeah. She... yeah, so I'm born and raised in New York City. Uh, my mom was, a, was an affluent woman for the latter portion of her life. She was able to afford healthful food, but nonetheless, um, she was struck by this condition, which now affects so many. And, um, and I think it probably had something to do with the food environment, which is now 73% ultra-processed. And this is something that began you know, probably around the 70s where uh, the, the, the influx of ultra-processed food-like products really began to reign on the market. And now our diets are saturated with it to the de degree that 60% of your average adult's um, food intake is comprised of these ultra-processed foods, which are calorie-dense, nutrient-poor high margin. And, um, and so that was actually the first place that I started to look, the food environment. And so what did you discover? And were you able to help her in her time? I know she passed away in 2018. She passed away in 2018. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't, I, I, I'll never be able to know, I'll never know what it was specifically that triggered my mom's illness. Um, but what I did learn is that by and large, you know, we're seeing skyrocketing rates of obesity by the year 2030, one in two adults are going to be not just overweight, but obese. We live in a time where at least half of the population is either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Most incidences of um, pre-diabetes are actually undiagnosed. And if you have type 2 diabetes, for example, your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease increases between two and fourfold. So all of these conditions are intricately related. Um, and we're now starting to realize that to the, to the, the degree that Alzheimer's disease is being considered a form of diabetes of the brain. Type 3 diabetes is how some are describing it. So when did this go from, hey, I want to make, uh, I want to lengthen my mom's life and maybe solve what she's dealing with to I'm going to help other people too and launch the podcast and this passion? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm, I love to be incredibly transparent and truthful about my background. So I, I didn't go through academia. I'm not a medical doctor, but I was a journalist and I had honed skills as a journalist, like storytelling, being able to create content and specifically being able to create content and good content for a young adult audience. I used to work for a TV network called Current TV, where I specialized in uh, creating short form Short documentaries, essentially, that um, would capture the waning attention spans of, of young adults, millennials. And I also had a knack for understanding um, and communicating science. I actually started college on a pre-med track. I've always been passionate about nutrition and fitness. And so when I set out to evangelize, in a way, um, what I was learning – very much for the for the benefit of my family, right? Not not so much for for commercial gain or anything like that. Like I never would have anticipated having written a book at this point and and being the host of a of a very popular health podcast. But it was really how can I use my skills to make an impact on this condition? So the movie, I'm going to roll a clip of your trailer from your movie. Yeah, could you give us set it up? Yeah. So the movie, the documentary is called Little Empty Boxes. It comes out this year, and it is essentially a portrait uh, and time capsule capsule of my mom's journey, what it's like. Uh, to have dementia from both a patient standpoint and caregiver standpoint, and also a tribute to the science, this growing field known as dementia prevention, which I feel very lucky and humbled and honored to have helped in a way usher in into the sort of public awareness. And you've worked it into your diet too? I've worked it into, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've changed my diet um, as a result of the production on the film and all the you know subsequent research that I've done. Here's a little clip. 
I've tested many diets over the years looking for the healthiest ones. A major challenge in nutrition studies is everyone is unique and responds differently to the same food. So what if we got people who are genetically the same? Twins share the same DNA, so we get to see if it's about your greens, not your genes. For the next eight weeks, we'll be investigating the pros and cons of a healthy diet that contains meat and dairy versus a plant-based diet. We're as sure processed meat causes cancer. We are that cigarette smoke causes cancer and plutonium causes cancer. Every time you eat a stick, a little puff of smoke goes up in the Amazon. Many of the same things that promote human health are also good for the environment. If you ask any human being, do you want to save the planet or destroy the planet? I mean, come on, it's a no-brainer, right? We can solve a lot of the issues that are hurting us by just rethinking what's at the end of our fork. Max Lugavere, you, your approach is to try to blow up, if of course necessary, some of the, some of the, I guess, fallacies that are out there that we take as fact. Yeah. Well, I just want to clarify the the clip that was just played. So that's not from my documentary. That's from a new Netflix TV series called "You Are What You Eat." Oh, okay. Yeah, which which I had nothing to do with. My documentary is called Little Empty Boxes, and it's about dementia. This this clip that you just played a, a clip from has been making the rounds now on social media, and it's a trending documentary uh, TV series on Netflix. And it's actually it's a it's a nutrition film, but with a much different um, van- from a much different vantage point. And this film that is uh, now I guess making the rounds on social media, and a lot of people were talking about is actually a uh, form of uh, pro vegan propaganda that I've called out on social media. Um, and it comes, it's it's basically... Save the world, eat vegetables. Eat, eat, go vegan. Not just eat vegetables, but but ditch animal products completely and go fully plant-based. And it is produced by a vegan association called OPS, the Oceanic Preservation Society. It's directed by a vegan, and it focuses on a study run by a vegan out of Stanford University who also sits on the board of a, um, of a vegan advocacy group called the Plant-Based Diet Initiative. And so the conclusion at the end of this documentary series, they put two twins, they take sets of twins and put one twin on, an, on a quote-unquote healthy omnivorous diet, and they put the other twin on a quote-unquote healthy vegan diet, and miraculously at the end of the TV series, they come to the conclusion that the vegan we should all be on vegan diets, which makes perfect sense when you consider the bias of everybody involved. Right. Uh, so you're saying that they skewed the, skewed the results? That person wasn't actually healthier? Correct, yeah. So there are a lot of what are called confounding variables here, which basically render this comparison that they're trying to make um, impossible, right? They're trying to compare two diets, but they're not controlled the way that diets need to be controlled to make a direct comparison. So the vegan dieters ended up consuming fewer calories by about 200 fewer calories, which is significant. They ended up losing weight. And notably, they ended up losing more muscle uh, mass in this TV series because they were eating significantly less protein. Protein is incredibly important to maintain muscle as we age, and muscle is now being considered a sort of c- currency of longevity because it helps us stay mobile and move about the world, and it's important for metabolic health, which we know that you know 90% of American adults today actually are in a state of metabolic um, dis-ease. On top of that, uh, they also, the vegan dieters consumed less saturated fat. They also ate a lot more um, dietary fiber, which we right. know, you know, independently can reduce LDL. And, you know, as vegan diet evangelists tend to do, they make LDL the sole, LDL cholesterol, LDL is a lipoprotein that actually carries cholesterol around in the body and is thought to be associated or is associated. It's good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, right? Well, now people are starting to take a more nuanced view of these lipoproteins and, and you know, LDL is, a, our bodies make both, right? So to demonize one or the other 
other doesn't make any sense. We're, we're now starting to get a more granular picture of what actually um, leads to elevated risk for cardiovascular disease. And cardiovascular disease is multifactorial. Diet plays, you know, one role, but we're just barely scratching the surface in terms of understanding the kind of diet that is optimal from a, a heart health standpoint. All right. Well, I promise you we'll get your clips when you uh, provide Amazing. them. Do you have? Do you actually have clips that are out there? Yeah, we do. We have a trailer at littleemptyboxes.com so people can take a, a peek at that. All right, yeah. good. So we'll, we'll look that up. We'll use that. More with Max next on The Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Max Lugavere, host of the Genius Life Podcast, is here with me, and we are talking about the foods you can eat for a healthy brain. What could you tell us, for example, what have you concluded, if you ever can make a conclusion, what could help your brain health? What are some of the, the things you can eat to help your brain? Such a great and important question. So from a, from a dietary standpoint, um, nutrition really is – our brains are made up of what we consume. And I think that grass-fed, grass-finished red meat is a, is a health food. I've gone to bat for it many times, even though this is controversial. I will say that this is controversial, even among you know um, medical experts and nutrition experts. But it's one of the most nutrient-dense foods that we have access to. Um, you'll see red meat make the list of any chart of nutrient density. Um, it's highly satiating, so it helps us ward off excess adiposity or excess weight, excess you know fat around the midsection, for example. Um, it's loaded with micronutrients like creatine, which we know um, is important to metabolic health as well as brain health. It's loaded with, uh, you know, vitamin B12, which plays an important role. Um, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for that. You can't really have a conversation about brain food without talking about the value of fatty fish. So salmon is, you know, a, a great example, but also sardines, herring, mackerel, wonderful source of omega-3 fatty acids. Really? The, the brain is comprised of omega-3 fats. Well, could you get that through supplements? You can, yeah. So fish oil is a great option. Um, you want to look for a high-quality fish oil. When I'm buying a fish oil, I look for IFO certification, and I have no affiliation with that organization. But what they do is they do third-party independent testing of fish oils to make sure that there's no rancidity, oxidation, or impurities. Um, and so you know, with a fish oil specifically, you actually want to buy the best that you can afford. All right, good. So uh, that'll be important for your health. What about the aging process? Yeah, I mean, you know, age-related decline seems to be fairly typical these days, but that doesn't mean that it's it's normal. You know, we've we've kind of normalized disease in this country because so many of us uh, suffer from age-related conditions, whether it's um, you know depression, frailty, uh, sarcopenia, sarcopenic obesity, which we know is is highly detrimental to the brain. Um, and so I think one of the best ways to ward off aging is by is by maintaining a vigorous exercise routine. So there were actually studies. Um, there was a really great study actually published in 2023 by Loon et al. that found that um, when 85-year-olds took on a resistance training routine, they saw the same degree of strength increase, about 40% of a strength increase in their one rep max for their for leg extensions, which is a measure of your quadricep strength, that 65-year-olds saw. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, people people tend to, you know think of aging as this sort of passive process by which we are all pulled inevitably towards decrepitude. But resistance training is the best way to fight back um, against aging. It's, so, yeah, find a way. I don't want to build big, uh, bulky muscle. It's nothing to do with it, right? There's different exercises you can do no. instead of a fitness program. You don't get that through your doctor. And you point out, too, that when by the time you go to your doctor, you're not healthy. 
Yeah. So you need things to prevent you by because it's not a it's not a healthy situation. You need things that's going to keep you out of the doctor's office. Exactly. So have you made up your program? Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Like, here's the deal, like, by, by the, and I saw this firsthand with my mom. I mean, I've been in myriad doctor's offices. I've been to the best, you know, cathedrals to academic medicine in the country because, again, my mom had, my mom had resources, but we were desperate like anybody would be. And what I've found is that by the time you show up to your doctor's office, what you're, what you're looking for ultimately is sick care. Healthcare is what begins at home. It begins when you are negotiating with yourself to pull yourself up off of the couch and get to the gym or, you know, even without a gym membership, do the push-ups and the pull-ups and the, and the, the, the wall sits and, you know, all of these different exercises that we have at our disposal to foster whole body strength, which we know is so important from the standpoint of metabolic health, bone health, like resistance training. A lot of people, you know, when they go and get the, that diagnosis of osteopenia or osteoporosis, they'll start taking a calcium supplement thinking that that helps. It doesn't hold a candle to resistance training. And I think for older generations, this is something that um, is highly underappreciated. I know that exercise, as far as my mom was concerned, was aerobic exercise. And we know, you know, cardiovascular exercise is certainly important. But what the past few decades um, or decade really of mm. of exercise science has shown us, it's that resistance training really is sort of uh, a holy grail of aging healthily. So what about these studies? I mean, I see some of your tweets back and forth where you took on Tufts College because yeah. you said Tufts told us the lucky charms are healthier than an egg. <laughs> Harvard warned that steak may cause type 2 diabetes. Stanford got uh, its own you-must-go-vegan guilt trip TV show. Yeah. So this is when you decide to take on these Huge organizations, dare I say, schools. Yeah. Well, my, you know, what I've decided to do with my career is punch up and speak truth to power. Um, I think part of that is my duty as a, as a journalist, but also because I'm so deeply immersed in the world of nutrition science and because I have a vested interest. I had a loved one who was incredibly sick and who was victim of, of a lot of this messaging, right, that comes from whether it's mainstream media or these academic institutions. And, you know, sadly, a lot of nutrition science today is not quite evidence-based, it's evidence-biased. And so, you know, I like to to really go head-to-head against these institutions when I feel that the time is right and do it in a way that's responsible because at the end of the day, I love nutrition science. I love it. Um, but, you know, we see a lot of corporate interest these days. Um, we see a lot of, uh, you know, inappropriate overlap between the food industry and nutrition science and also what I like to call covert bias. So, you know, when you're getting nutrition advice from somebody, you want, that advice should be um, solely limited to the domain of nutrition science. But today, often it's muddled by covert activism, right? It's people who are giving their advice, but through the lens of climate activism or through the lens of animal welfare, which is and not... that's the- what you found with this? There was a reason they came up with these studies? Yeah. So the Tufts University Food Compass, which... Um, you know, went super viral on social media, and and I still get pushback whenever I talk about it. Tufts tried to release a um, what they call well, what is called a nutrient profiling system of their own, called the Food Compass. And what they did was they took tens of thousands of food items found in the in the supermarket, and they and they and they basically like applied an algorithm that they devised to all of these different food items to come up with a score. Right, a, a healthfulness score that they gave to all of these many different foods. And a separate group led by Beal et al. found that when you take these foods out of context right, and stack them one on top of one another and create sort of a food hierarchy, that there are some very odd juxtapositions that you see. You, you, you saw things in this chart that went viral, this chart that went viral subsequent to the release of the, um, of the food compass data, 
that Lucky Charms, according to Tufts, was healthier than a poached egg, right? That uh, egg substitute fried in vegetable oil was somehow healthier than a real egg, which, you know, a four-year-old would look at that and be like, that is just BS. And um, critics to the pushback that the Tufts Food Compass received said, well, you know, these food items weren't meant to be taken out of their respective categories and um, that, you know, the, the, the scores weren't necessarily meant to say that one food is healthier than another. But if you actually go to the Tufts website, Tufts did exactly that. Right. The score, uh, a food with a higher score was meant to be consumed more frequently. A food, with a, a food item with a lower score was meant to be consumed less frequently. And that's what a scoring system is meant to do, right? Like, we don't, we don't give sports teams scores right for for no reason right, right. We, we give them scores they they achieve yeah. scores and in when, game. when you examine it they got defensive and they start saying you're reading it wrong exactly they got and, they got defensive they got defensive but i think calling it calling it out was so important because the the whole point of this food compass nutrient profiling system was meant to um provide information for consumers on front of package labeling so uh give us an idea how to get to the bottom of all your research you did the hard part yeah so we could just follow you so you yeah. got the movie out how do we get it so littleemptyboxes.com is a great way to keep tabs on the documentary, which is about dementia prevention. I host a podcast called The Genius Life, and I've written three books. So my Where do we get The Genius Life? The Genius Life. All, all podcast All platforms? podcast platforms and on YouTube, yeah. All right. And then you, and the book? And so my first book is called Genius Foods. It's a nutritional care manual to the brain. I highly recommend checking that out. That was the first book I ever wrote, um, and it's a New York Times bestseller. It's published now around the world. It's a, It really is a, a sort of nutritional care manual to the brain, how to get better brain health and mental health through food. And then my most recent book is called Genius Kitchen, which is both a both a cookbook and a wellness guide. Lots of delicious recipes, photos, things like that. Sounds like a great book. Coming up, though, Max tells me the truth on Impossible Burgers and Joe Rogan. You are listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Remember to check out Brian's show, One Nation, Saturdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. If you already have plans, set up that DVR and watch when you get home. That's One Nation, Saturdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Be there. Radio that makes you think. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Max Lugavier, author of Genius Foods, is still here. Find out how he defines processed foods and what he thinks about Joe Rogan. So, I mean, the one thing is you you love this. I love it. And you feel like there's still a lot more to learn? I do, yeah. Well, yes. I mean, on the one hand, I think that, you know, we don't, we don't need more science to know that a whole foods diet is more optimal than an ultra processed food diet, right? But obviously there are forces out there that want to convince us Otherwise, right. right? I mean, there was a study that came out that they tried to push past, um, you know, the, the the public showing us that a healthy diet could be comprised primarily of ultra processed foods, which is, of course, BS. How would you define a processed food? So that's a fantastic question. And processing is a continuum. When you have a, a, a an apple, you know, in front of you, that's an unprocessed food. When you slice that apple, you're processing it to some degree, right? Um, and of course, apple juice is the most processed form of that of that apple. Um, so even if I squeeze the juice like I would an orange. Like you're processing you, you, it. You, what you want to do is base your diet around minimally processed foods. When you cook food, you're processing it to some degree. But what we want to be really wary of are the ultra-processed foods. So these are foods that you couldn't possibly make in your own kitchen if you tried, right? They have innumerable ingredients, right? Ingredients that you can't pronounce. And people, you know, skeptics might listen to me say that and say, oh, uh, appeal to nature fallacy. But it actually is a pretty good litmus test, you know? Like if, if, if a food 
item has, you know, dozens of ingredients and you can't pronounce half of them. Well, that that pretty that correlates pretty strongly, you might assume, to a food that is ultra processed that you couldn't possibly make in your own kitchen. Pretty good. Uh, that's pretty good barometer. Yeah, it's a pretty so good. If barometer, I can't make right? it, but I, I, I am surprised by that. Like for example, if I just get a like an old fashioned nineteen fifties orange juice squeezer, yeah. and I just get an orange right from a tree, yeah. and I put it in that that steel crusher, <laughs> and I with the juice, I am processing it. I'm you, not adding sugar. Yeah. I'm not doing anything. I'm not even taking out the pulp. Well, you're you you are a hundred percent processing it, and the way that your body responds to those different food products, right? The whole orange right. versus the orange juice that you've just made in your own kitchen, right? Your body is gonna is gonna handle both of those very differently. The orange juice, you've extracted all of the fiber, and all you're left with essentially is the sugar and vitamin C from that orange juice, right? So vitamin C is great. And, you know, there are some studies that, that suggest that, that orange juice can still play a healthful role in the diet. Of course, if you're consuming it in moderation, no problem. I wouldn't worry about it. But the whole orange is self-limiting, whereas in a glass of orange juice, you could easily consume the sugar from three whole oranges, right? Because it's not as satiating as the whole orange, which has that whole food matrix, which we're now starting to learn is so important. It's got the fiber, right? right? It's got the minerals. So the my sense is, my gut always told me that if it's coming from nature and there's sugar in it, that sugar's not bad for you. A hundred, exactly, exactly. So I love to separate fact from fiction on social media, and I also love to myth bust. And yeah, you're 100% right in that sugar from in its whole food form is totally fine. Sugar is not inherently toxic. There's nothing wrong with sugar. All, all plant foods which are incredibly healthy, we know that fruits and vegetables are very good for you, have sugar to some degree, right? And even a little bit of added sugar here and there is not a big problem if you're active, right? Yeah. If, you're, if you're exercising regularly. Like sugar is not the devil that I think some people make it out to be, but, you know, it's meant to be consumed in moderation. On the other hand, I think your average adult today consumes something like 70 pounds of added sugar every single year, the which is nuts. The only thing Impossible Burgers are? Is junk. Filled with? Crap. <laughs> Can I say <laughs> that? It's terrible. Yeah, it's just ultra-processed. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I felt good about it until people started telling me, you realize how bad they are for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, here and there in moderation, it's it's not a problem. I mean, look, like, you know, people on paleo diets, they eat, there's, you know, all kinds of paleo breads on the market now. So paleo diet advocates are, you know, they have their own form of, of imitation food, right? But I think at the end of the day, this, this false comparison that people make, these plant-based meat alternatives don't hold a can to the real thing when looking at their nutritional value. And also, again, they're, they're minimally processed, and we've co-evolved with food, right? We've co-evolved with animal products. And animal products, like a piece of beef, right? Like we could even say lean beef. It doesn't, it's not just a great source of protein. It's a great source of all of these different myriad nutrients that we know play a role in our physiology. Do you care what the cows were eating before you slaughtered it and ate it? You know, I do care. I think that 100%. Does that matter? It, it does matter, but to a what I would call probably a trivial degree in the grand scheme of things. You okay. know, if all you have, you're grass fed and yeah, if you have the resources to buy grass fed, I say, by all means, do it. It's better for the cow. It's better for the environment and it's better for you. Right. But also even a piece of, and I, and I hate to promote the, the factory farm system because it's abhorrent to the animals and it's abhorrent to the environment. So that has to be said. But I also think that, you know, for your average person now who's serving, you know, boxed Mac and cheese for dinner to make the swap over to factory farm meat. I think that's a, that's a healthful decision to make. Understood. Uh, I just always too, you had to take their word. Fawn, like salmon, you know, is uh, non. What is it? 
what do they call it? There's fresh and what do you call it? Farm ra- there's farm, farm raised and there's wild. We're yeah. also going on the alert. Who are these people yeah. telling us how where we caught the salmon? Yeah, well, I, we, yeah. We, we can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah. You know, like we don't all have access to the kinds of supermarkets that, that, that I have living in Los Angeles that you have living in New York. You know, I mean, like we, we can't let perfect be the enemy of the good. And context matters. We live in a world, again, where 73 percent of the food products in your average supermarket are ultra processed. Right. Did you find that Joe Rogan, did he know everything about the nutrition when you were on with him, right? Yeah, he's a, he's a big fan of, 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 of nutrition. nutrition. Yeah, did you is. feel like he could keep up with you? Oh, for sure. I mean, that guy's sharp as hell, and he's, yeah, he's amazing. I was so grateful for the opportunity that he gave me. Um, you know, and I, I was on episode 1870. It was a master class in dementia prevention. And, oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he's super into it. He's a, big, he's a big advocate of, you know, he consumes plants. He consumes, you know, fruits and vegetables. He also consumes meat that he hunts himself. And, you know, wild game tends to be leaner than factory farmed raised meat anyway. So it's, I mean, it's a healthful, it's a more healthful choice. How, how he has time to shoot his own dinner is beyond <laughs> me with everything he's got going on. You're right. Yeah. Uh, Max Lugavir, great seeing you. Great to meet you. Congratulations on everything. And I'm glad we didn't throw you by rolling in the wrong clip. If you're able to roll with it, you knew exactly where we got it. Yeah, brother. Right? Well, thank you so much, Brian. I, I won't throw you off the next time, I promise. <laughs> you're the man. Thank you. Thanks, Max. So I think there's one thing that is, is so clear to me between people taking shots to lose weight, people, everyone going on a new diet, especially in January, even people trying to find out what works, all pasta, no pasta, a lot of carbs, less carbs, let's get more protein, stop eating meat. It's always good to see someone on the cutting edge that had a life-changing experience because he saw what was happening to his mom and decides to make it his life mission. And what I love most about it is it's an ongoing debate with him and he's an ongoing learning experience, but I love the fact, and I didn't know nothing about Max before he got here, but after talking to him in the breaks and after the show, and we'll have him on when his book comes out, I'll definitely have him on One Nation on Saturdays, and I'm sure on Fox and Friends. Just a little things you can do to alter your diet and keep yourself healthy. I mean, ultimately, we are responsible. I mean, we all know, especially people around my age, you have older parents, and you see some of the uh, some of the things are out of their control. But some of the what you do early in your life outlines how you're going to end your life. And if you could make those decisions now, the wisdom of now can help your life later. And if people just need to be educated once they understand why they're doing things, they're motivated to do things. So that's what I thought was so important to spend some quality time with Max. Listen, I thought it was going to be a good segment. Then I realized an hour wasn't even long enough. That's why his podcast is so successful. Hey, by the way, pick up uh, Teddy and Booker T on a separate note. Go to BrianKillMe.com. Also, I'm going to be in Henderson, Nevada, on stage, talking about all my books in America, how it was great from the start. It's going to be entertaining and engaging. Go to BrianKillMe.com. If you're planning a trip to Las Vegas, we're in Henderson, 20 minutes just outside the Strip. Huge theater. I know we could fill it up. We bring history to life. And my view and my family's view is better than Hamilton. Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks for listening. Keep it here. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.